You're listening to the Kitchen Scene Investigator Podcast. Hola, hola. Welcome from my COVID kitchen here in Los Angeles. I'm your host, Nikki Girado. Yep, I'm just like you. I'm overwhelmed and pretty much out of ideas in my kitchen. So I'm extra excited about today's show. I am talking with Bob Bloomer about his new book, his new cookbook, Flavor Bomb. And we take a look inside at the insights, techniques, and hacks to whip up crave-worthy cooking. I mean, who doesn't want crave-worthy cooking, right? But before I get into the show, I just want to take a moment for some housekeeping and welcome some new listeners from around the globe and across the U.S. Welcome Poland, Norway, Switzerland, Canada, India, and Iraq. Welcome to the show. I'm so excited to have you. And from the U.S., Kansas, Tennessee, Georgia, Utah, Puerto Rico, and Hawaii. Welcome to Kitchen Scene Investigator. If you love the show, please take a moment to give it a a constructive review. It really does help the robots help other people find the show. And if you love the content of the show, please consider making a donation. There's a PayPal button on my website, kitchenscenainvestigator.com, where you can uh, make a donation and help me cover the cost of putting together the show. Okay, about Bob. So Bob's a Canadian and longtime Angelino. He's been the host of two Food Network shows, has written six cookbooks, broken eight Guinness World Records, is an artist and a self-described culinary charlatan. From his roots as a rock and roll manager to cooking and eating around the globe, Bob has, he has this high energy approach to crave worthy cooking. It's less dependent on let's say recipes and more on a toolbox you can adapt to help build what I like to call your life menu. With all of us stuck at home and like feeling this massive cooking fatigue and missing, really, really missing going out to eat. His book Flavor Bomb, it's it's a fun, bright spot and a cooking companion that helps decode how to whip up crave-worthy food. As always, I end the show with asking Bob, what he's drinking, what's making him happy, and his favorite gift to give a friend or colleague. Please enjoy this fun and insightful conversation with Bob Bloomer. And P.S., you may want to grab a pen before listening to this. Enjoy. Hi, Bob. Welcome to the show. Hi, Nikki. I am so excited to talk with you today about Flavor Bomb. Man, it feels very timely absolutely timely. And like we were talking about when we first, you know, came up with this episode, the state of affairs as they are has is really impacting us at home. I know that the COVID kitchen is driving me crazy. I miss going out to eat. I really do. And it isn't just because I want to go out to eat and be vain and get dressed up and do my hair and makeup. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love that. And it isn't just nourishment, but for me, going out to eat is discovery and spending time with servers and bartenders and chefs. They really are, for me, the advocate to that creativity. And, you know, how many times have I discovered a new cheese or a new cocktail or a new flavor combination? So to me, it feels like a huge gaping whole. And when I got your book, thank you for my copy. (laughs) I already have grease stains on it (laughs) from cooking from it. In the beginning of the book, you say, can you articulate exactly what it is about dishes that you find so addictive? Do you keep a running list of go-to restaurants for your favorite flavor bombs? Bob, that hit me like a two-ton brick. (laughs) We all have those lists, don't we? (laughs) I sure do. And I have a restaurant here in Los Angeles that I go to religiously for mussels. And not being able to go, I don't know, I feel like I'm missing my warm teddy bear. So when I saw that in your book, I thought, man, how many people at home are feeling the same way that going out to eat is their lifeline to creativity and discovery in the kitchen. I I really think that your book is so timely. Well, 
It's funny, Nikki, because I, I wrote this book two years ago, long before the pandemic, of course. And when I wrote that, I wasn't really being nostalgic about you know, people thinking about the dishes they were missing, it, there's actually, a, it, it has a completely different meaning or it had at the time. And that was, you know, are there in no, so-called normal times, are, are there dishes that you, you crave that you eat out of restaurants, but when you come home and you try and duplicate those flavors, you can't duplicate it. And that's really the whole essence of this book is it's not so much about, you know, duplicating things that you can no longer have. It's really, it's all about the big, bold flavors that you're, you become accustomed to enjoying in restaurants. And how come you can't do the same thing at home? And this book really unlocks the secrets uh, of how to create big, bold flavors and coaxing those out of the same basic ingredients that you would conventionally buy. But um, with, all sorts of different tricks and hacks and techniques, uh, small T techniques, not fancy pants chef techniques, but just um, simple techniques that can allow you, again, to coax big flavor out of the same ingredients that you have on hand. Well, I'm glad you br- you brought up big and bold because I feel that the tone and uh, look and feel of the whole book is big and bold. And I'm sensing, my little investigator self is sensing that this tone and this sort of sachet is is a direct outcome of having this incredible life. Because doing research for the show, I learned that You've lived quite an exciting and varied life. <laughs> and f- and for the listeners that are not familiar with your six books and your shows on Food Network and your your Guinness Book of World Records, help me understand how somebody from the outside, because I think this is really important for listeners at home who go, wait, I, I have those those plates, I want to recreate them at home. I, I want to have bold, bombastic, nostalgic, you know, experiences with my food. Bob, take me from being a rock and roll manager to being a culinary charlatan. But like, explain culinary charlatan to begin with. What What is that? You have to be a charlatan to be a, to be a manager. It's just, it comes with the territory. And I wasn't enough of a charlatan to be a hugely successful manager. I did manage a very eclectic singer-songwriter by the name of Jane Sibbery, uh, who's best known for a song called Calling All Angels uh, that she sang with Katie Lang um, on the Vim Vendors soundtrack or the soundtrack to his film uh, Until the End of the World. But, um, you know, I had the experience to travel the world with Jane. And as a manager, you just... you basically just have to get shit done. It doesn't matter what uh, what it takes to get the band from point A to point B in the middle of whatever calamity happens to be happening. You just, you have to make it happen. And that's, mm-hmm. that's an approach, which is actually not that different from uh, the approach of, of restaurant chefs, which is, you know, every night there are um, various hurdles that they have to get through. And and even in their lives, between um, never mind from night to night, but you know, as in the case we're dealing with right now with the pandemic, I mean, chefs are survivors and they get the job done, whatever it takes. But I uh, I was a manager for twelve years, and then I wrote this. I wrote a cookbook as a pet project. It actually started out as a gift to my kid sister when she moved uh, into her first apartment. I put a, like everything I knew how to make and all my bachelor tips and whatnot. I read about that list. <laughs> and uh, and I called it Bob's Bachelor Basics. And then I had this idea to take that and turn it into a cookbook. And I only thought that because I was incredibly naive and thought, well, why can't I write a cookbook if I have some ideas about, you know, what would, what someone like my sister would need. And um, so I created this proposal and I couldn't afford a photographer to dish any of the dishes that I decided to include in it. So I illustrated the dishes, but instead of illustrating them as in illustrating a 
plate of food, I created these surreal illustrations, um, which were sort of more representative of the dish. But it would like, for example, for a broccoli soup, I, I uh, drew a, a chef, but his head was a head of broccoli. And... Um, <laughs> And so because of that, I called myself and the book, The Surreal Gourmet. And uh, I tricked someone at Chronicle Books. I, could, I tried to get an agent. I couldn't get an agent. So I tricked someone at Chronicle Books into letting me come up and have a brief meeting with them, which I thought would be very brief. I'd be thrown out of my ear. But surprisingly enough, they offered me um, a little baby band deal, to use mm-hmm. music reference. And then the book came out and it sort of caught the fancy of uh, a few people and I was immediately reviewed in the New York Times and invited onto the Today Show and thus began my accidental career. And then I had to learn how to cook. (laughs) (laughs) So this is, here's what I find really interesting about listening to what you're saying and reading about your life experiences and your books. This is what I find really interesting. You have an incredible reservoir of curiosity. And not everybody who starts out outside of the food world has the curiosity, number one, the facility, number two, and the desire to write a cookbook, let alone organize their thoughts enough to make something legible, enjoyable, and understandable. Like, where does this curiosity come from? Like, did you come out of the shoot wondering what's going on? Hey, what's up, Canada? Um, <laughs> yes, I am Canadian. Um, no, here's what it is. I don't see it as a curiosity. Um, I see myself as being someone who's resourceful, and I also always want to elevate my quality of life. And I very, uh, very quickly I learned that if you learn how to cook, you can elevate your quality of life and every, you know, because you're eating three meals a day. And so I, I had an interest in that. And then also, uh, despite the fact that I was an artist manager, I had originally applied to business. Uh, sorry, I went to business school, but I had applied to uh, the Rhode Island School of Design, who turned me down as a student, but I've always been a, uh, an artist. And so I realized at an early stage that uh, cooking is just another form of art. So uh, if you're painting a painting, you're mixing colors and you know that if you have yellow and blue, you're going to end up with green. And so the same thing is true for me with ingredients. I, I, I know in my mind, I can taste what the result is going to be of mixing two different ingredients uh, or adding you know, an ingredient to something. And so it's really an artful process cooking. I I see I can see how you're seeing and thinking about the whole process and breaking it down to its parts the same way that an artist has brushes and paints and canvases and ideas and from all those individual pieces comes an expression of art. And speaking of expression of art, what would you say is your genre? Of cooking, my genre has evolved. When I wrote my first book, as I mentioned, I called myself the surreal gourmet, and but there was nothing surreal about the food. And then I got this one bad review from a reviewer uh, in Australia who took me to task for the fact that there was no surreal food in my book. And at first, I was really like I was pissed off. Then I realized that he was actually handing me the keys to this kingdom that had yet to be discovered. Because in those days, you know, foam was something you shaved with. It wasn't uh, something you put on a plate. And the whole notion of like creating a dish that was a tromploi dish, so a a dish that tricked the eye. um, Are you talking about like molecular gastronomy? No, well, the foam is molecular gastronomy, but there's a much more Luddite version of presentation that is like I'm, I evolved, my presentation evolved to the point where I was making, for example, an entree, a savory entree that looked exactly like a cupcake. So you have a, <laughs> it looks like a chocolate cupcake with uh, pink icing, but truthfully, it's lamb shank that I roasted, pulled off the bone, mixed with all sorts of ingredients and baked in a cupcake tin. And then I topped it with mashed potatoes that I added a little bit of roasted beet to, and I piped them onto the top of the what looked like the cake. And so from your eye to the plate, it looks exactly like a cupcake, but it's really a savory entree. So for the last like 25 years, that was my signature style of cooking was this 
always big, bold flavors, but presented in a surreal uh, manner. But with this book, um, and th- this book really is, it's really like the sum total of everything I have learned in the 30 years that I've been cooking and traveling around the world and doing all these crazy things with my TV shows and breaking Guinness World Records and working with chefs, you know, everyone from hawker stall vendors in Singapore to gumbo champions in Louisiana to fancy pants Michelin chefs in France, who's, you know, beside whom I've cooked and learned and, um, and so that's where all this information and all these tricks and hacks and whatnot have come from. And so I've taken what I learned about cooking and having created my own style and I've distilled it down to, like I've taken away all the tricks in terms of like presentation tricks and just right. distilled it down to how do you coax big flavor right. out of the ingredients you bring home from the grocery store. And so that's what this is now. My my style of cooking has evolved from a very specific artful presentation to mm-hmm. just let's talk about creating big, bold flavors. That's a great transition to talk about how listeners at home can embrace what you're offering them with this book into their own lives. Because the one thing that I convey, I preach, I beg listeners, you know, please do this, is develop your own life menu. And in order to develop your own life menu, you need to know what the moving parts are, right? Like you need to know what the moving parts of a template whether it is a grain bowl, whether it is a a farm to table expression like California cuisine, or whether it is, you know, a very traditional Southern dish, you need to know what those moving parts. And what I find really interesting is that you took your life experiences and you were able to tease out those moving parts into a language. And in this book, what I see is you are offering listeners, readers, cooks, adventurers, starving folk, the language to be able to create their own life menu through the lens of your experiences and your, and your know-how. And I, I love the way you broke down the book because what I'm seeing in the book is you talk about ingredients, you talk about gear, you talk about technique, and you talk about finish, and you talk about soul. The book has um, two sections. The first half is really how to cook and how to make everything taste better, regardless of it's uh, a recipe from my book or something you make at home on a, you know, on a weeknight. It's just about how to make anything taste better. So it's really, it's instructional. And then the second half of the book uh, are my recipes. Um, One thing that I really don't want to uh, gloss over and forget about talking about, and that is your approach to this book um, is positioned through the lens of also um, waste management. And in this day and age of COVID and really paying attention to waste and how we are functioning in our homes, I love that you brought that front and center. Like when you cook, you should really be cognizant of waste. Where, like, where did that come from? In terms of the, this zero waste lens over the last Two years, I've been, uh, I, I refer to myself as a spokesmodel, but I guess I'm an ambassador for an organization in Canada called Love Food, Hate Waste. Um, and I've also been doing some uh, zero waste advocacy here in, in the States. And, um, and you know, it, reducing your, the amount of waste in the kitchen is really, it, it's just about creativity. Well, first of all, it's, the problem is there's, we live in a world of abundance and there's just too much, we have too much food and it's easier for us to just buy an extra whatever, a head of, you know, a head of lettuce or a bunch of parsley than to make sure we use every last bit of the last one that we had. But COVID has kind of changed that. And, you know, in the beginning there were, you know, either there were big lines at the grocery stores or you didn't want to go to the grocery store or whatever. So it's been a a nice, um, uh, silver lining to, to the pandemic is that I think people are a little more conscious about using everything that they buy and being less, wa- less wasteful. And so I've just, it's really not, um, it's maybe a subtext. It's, it's not a, a main part of the book. It's just, I have recipes where I know there's going to be things 
parts of ingredients that are left over. And so I just give suggestions, practical suggestions on how to use them. I mean, a lot, if I really think about what my book is about, it's just really practical advice from someone who's lived food 24-7 for the last 30 years and been exposed to so many different styles of cooking and solutions to you know, various culinary problems. And also someone who's not a restaurant chef, so that being me, so that I'm I'm not caught up in traditional ways to things. I just, when I lean back on my rock manager perspective, I just want to get this stuff done. I want to get it done fast and I want it to be as tasty as it can be. And I don't want any pomp and circumstance around it. And I don't want anything else to drag me down. I just want to walk into my kitchen, make something super delicious, really big, bold flavors, and then be eating it as quickly as I can. I think you hit on something that's really going to resonate with with folks at home. Because when you're cooking one, two, three meals, you have kids looking up at you at 12, at three, at six, at eight o'clock at night. I mean, I don't know how people are not losing their minds. I mean, oh, they're losing their minds. All right. (laughs) (laughs) It's it's really something else. But um, people want delicious. They want fast. They want reliable and they want creativity. And so being this outsider person, I think really is going to resonate with listeners because listeners, most of them are outsiders. So if you have, if you could give advice to someone at home who is using your book and is looking to capture their creativity, like what would be your advice to, to capture that creativity and start to like put it on paper so that when their husband says, Hey babe, this is the most amazing tomato soup with grilled cheese. I'm saying that because I saw it in the book and I can't wait to make it. Um, like what would your, what would be your advice for listeners at home to start capturing their creativity? Here's the whole thing about my book. My book is not about anything. It's not about a particular recipe. Right. Exactly. An approach to cooking and building layers of flavor and texture into, into everything you make. Um, if I had to really um, spell out the building blocks, it's about building layers of flavor and texture. It's about learning to taste as you go and then having developing the confidence to season with wild abandon, you know. And then it's about understanding the various finishing steps that you can do towards the very end to really sort of take it up to the next level and to think about what you're making so that you you take these these different building blocks and then you build them into your regular routine. So I've gone through your book and and I've cooked from your book. I'm having a lot of fun doing that. And it's it's like a gentle but exciting hand-holding. Um, I don't want to give away all the secrets in the book, but there are some goodies in here. And um, the list is way too long for me to go over. But if you could share with listeners some of the magic that you're offering in the book, I would love to share that. Like, Give me three three things in the book that when you wrote it, you were like, man, am I good? Well, it's not that I think I'm good. I think, uh, for starters, it's, it's my saying to myself, wow, if I can just share this information that I've figured out from all these different sources that I've learned them from, someone's going to be able to take my squash ravioli with this brown butter and make it in 10 to 15 minutes and blow away whoever they're serving it to. So I'm going to describe this dish for you. Please do. It's so simple, but it it, it, it uses all the building blocks that I, I provide in the book. So um, it's a squash ravioli, but you just, you take uh, kombucha squash or butternut squash. What is kombucha squash? Explain that. Kombucha squash is my favorite squash. It's a really intense squash with a very deep, rich flavor. A lot of squashes, when you roast them, can be uh, a little bit watery, um, and pumpkins as well. But uh, other squashes have a sort of meaty flesh and a rich, dense, almost caramelly flesh, especially when you roast it and caramelize, which is something I talk about in the book a lot, caramelization. It's the natural sugars and things like squash that um, if you roast them at a high temperature for an hour, um, those sugars caramelize and make whatever you're, you're cooking taste like candy. So, uh, wait, Bob, you're telling me I can turn squash into candy? Hey, you can turn cauliflower into candy. Let's talk. Yep. 
Um, it's, you know, a lot of vegetables, fruits um, have these natural sugars in them. And that's what, if you take white sugar, I'm going to digress for a second. If you take white mm-hmm. sugar and you put it in a pan over a low temperature, it melts. And then after it melts, uh, if you leave it on, on the heat, it starts to turn brown. And then if you pour that onto a you know, sheet pan, it hardens, and that's caramel. And so that's white sugar that's turned to caramel. So the natural sugars in, say, a, a cauliflower, if you roast it, take your cauliflower, break it into florets, roast it for an hour, it's going to brown on the outside, and that's the natural sugars that have caramelized. And all of a sudden, kids who wouldn't go close to a piece of raw cauliflower are begging you to serve it to them and make it make it again for them. Ooh, that is a promise to mom and dad at home. Wow. Serve that up as cauliflower <laughs> popcorn. Yes, sir. Sign me up. So let's go back to this um, squash, roasted squash ravioli. So you take uh, squash, cut it in half, you throw it in the oven, leave it there for an hour. It comes out. It's nice and caramelized and dense and delicious. You mix it up with a little bit of goat cheese. That's part one. Then you take um, wonton wrappers. So instead of spending a day making pasta and turning it out, you know, everything that's involved in making it, letting it sit, um, and then, um, you know, putting it through a pasta maker and all that, you just go to the store, you buy wonton wrappers, which are flour and water, essentially the same ingredients that pasta is. And they're nice and thin, and they're, they're four inches square, three inches square, which is basically the size of a piece of ravioli. And so you take your squash and goat cheese filling, and you put it between two wontons, and you use a fork and a little bit of water to press them together. And then all of a sudden, you have your uh, squash ravioli. Then... And that's, you know, that's fine and it's delicious, but that's only half the, half the game. So now we're going to make some brown butter. We take um, half a stick of butter, put it in a pan, melt it. And as it's melting, you add some garlic, some pumpkin seeds, some fresh sage, some pepper, and, um, and let it simmer for about 10 minutes. And what happens is the butter gets infused. It, first of all, the butter browns, so you get that nuttiness of it, of brown butter. The garlic and the sage infuse the flavor of the butter. The garlic bits that you've minced get nice and crispy. The sage leaves brown up and get nice and crispy. The pumpkin seeds get nice and crispy. And so then you, when, once that's all done, which takes seven minutes, you drop your raviolis in a pot of water for about a minute or two until they basically just warmed up because that's all that has to happen. Everything's cooked in it. The cheese melts a little bit into the goat, into the squash. Um, you put two or three raviolis in a shallow bowl. You pour this beautiful brown butter with all of this gorgeous, flavorful shrapnel over top of it. Mm-hmm. Then you add a little bit of Parmesan Reggiano. Mm-hmm. And finally, and this is a trick I learned for a restaurant called um, Kraft. It's actually Tom Colicchio's restaurant. Yes, I interviewed his pastry chef. Oh, nice. Well, I yeah. did a stage there before he became Tom Colicchio, the mm-hmm. judge. And uh, every dish that um, they finished in the kitchen, whether it was a meat dish, a fish dish, a pasta or whatever it was, they would, they would drizzle a little bit of their very best olive oil on top and hit it with mm. a pinch of the very best sea salt. And that was like in the first bite you take of anything, you're getting that lusciousness of the olive oil and the, the salt that brings out the flavors of everything. And so, so this whole dish, if you don't count the hour that the squash is roasting, because you literally cut it in half and throw it on a sheet pan in the oven, this whole thing takes maximum 10 to 15 minutes to make, yet it's got such huge flavor and, and such nice textures so are you saying that cooking, when you're done cooking, that's not the end of it, that there's this beautiful frontier of finishing that could take your flavors way up, you know, to the other stratosphere. Is that what I'm hearing? Well, it's, I like to get my flavors to a 10. And then when you, there, I have a list of things that you finished various dishes with uh, in my book, and that takes them up to 11. I like 11. <laughs> you know, sometimes it's as simple as uh, poaching an egg and putting the egg on top. 
sometimes uh, I, I left in my refrigerator, I always keep some um, fried rustic breadcrumbs. So when I have mm-hmm. stale bread, um, I'll smash it up with a whatever, a baseball bat or whatever I have on hand. Uh, break it. Yeah, no, I use, you know, I use a little mallet, but. Um, it's okay. It's COVID. <laughs> You're free to do it. <laughs> I, um, I fry them up just with a little bit of olive oil or sometimes leftover anchovy oil from a tin of anchovies, if you want to talk about zero waste. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so I have these breadcrumbs, and if I make a pasta, I'll sprinkle some, some breadcrumbs uh, on top of the pasta. Or if I'm making a quick Caesar salad, um, instead of having croutons, and you get like one you know, one crouton in every four mouthfuls, you get these beautiful breadcrumbs in it. So, um, so that's, you know, breadcrumbs are another finishing item, fresh herbs, Um, I use a ton of zest. I mean, I use... What do you mean zest? um, You know, the outer skin of a lemon or a lime. Like on a microplane? Yeah. I mean, I'll even, for example, um, if I'm making some granola for myself, I'll have the granola and I'll have the yogurt, and then I'll take the zest of an orange and just zest that into, you know, on top of the the yogurt. And, And zest, as the name suggests, is very bright and zesty. And another thing is it's free because you've bought the orange or the lemon or the lime for its juice, and uh, but you've got this beautiful exterior that has such great flavor and it can really add some pop and not kick, but pop and zestiness to a, a lot of dishes. And fish, for example, you just zest a little bit of uh, lemon on top of a pan-seared piece of fish, drizzle some olive oil, hit it with a bit of salt. And that, that last, those three collective steps can really take it from a 10 to an 11. And also very simple. I mean, it's, that is what my book is all about. My book is not for chefs, for professional chefs or anyone like that. My book is for people who can understand the concept of adding flavors, but don't necessarily know where to pull those flavors from or how to do it. But everything that I suggest is there's virtually no learning curve to anything. It's more that I'm giving people a toolbox to use. And once once anyone opens the toolbox and they see the tools in there, they go, oh, I, I can figure out how to use that. Right. And I love that. I love, I love that you've provided lists. Like, here's the thing about cookbooks, and especially in the fall. In the fall, there are so many new cookbooks that come out. And, uh, you know, it's like, I'm a chef. Here's my restaurant and my cookbook. It's like... I'm a chef. I went to China and here's my cookbook. There's only so much room on the shelf for a new cookbook. And I'll tell you right now, I've been cooking for 40 years. And yeah, I admitted that I've been cooking for 40 years. And I am really judicious about the books that I buy, because there's only so much room on the shelf, you know, and there's only so much disposable income. I mean, if you have that much disposable income, you're not cooking. But if (laughs) you know that to be true, but if you're at home, and you really want something tangible and easy to use, the last thing you want is an overabundance of narrative, you know, when you're trying to be really fast in the kitchen. And what I'm trying to say is I really like your use of lists. I really like the way that you have organized the book so that you can start at the beginning and then take some of those techniques and then go into the recipes, you know, in part two and get cooking. You don't have to read the entire narrative of how you used to watch your grandmother make gnocchi or... By the way, that narrative doesn't exist in my book, right? No, 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 not at all. And I appreciate that. I mean, there is a place, let me be honest, there is a place for those beautiful, narrative-driven, almost uh, philosophical chef-forward books. I have many of them, and I spend many Sunday afternoons with a glass of rosé reading them because I love them. But those books are not going to help me put dinner on the table for ki- you know kids that are starving. This is your third meal of the day. You haven't gone out to eat to a restaurant in nine months. And I really appreciate how you organized the book. And I think that listeners at home are going to appreciate that list. Because for an example, the list that you know I'm talking about, you have like your flavor bomb 15. I literally would rip those pages out of the book and take it with me to Ralph's. <laughs> those are, so those are all my ingredients. They're my go-to, the top 15 ingredients that I think can really add big flavors. Where did you get them? 
Like how how did you finally decide on fifteen? I would have a nervous breakdown. I think I decided on ten, and then I kept adding more, and then it became fifteen. Can you share? Can you share some of those that are on the list? Sure. I just want to circle back for one second, though, to um, what you were saying about narratives, because I I agree with you. I, I mean, there's I have some great books that are you know have great narratives. Um, but this book is, it's not about me. It's not for me. It's for the, the audience who wants to cook better. And so it's written for that audience. And I'm just trying to give them information. I'm not trying to talk about myself. Occasionally, I'll throw in an anecdote just to allow something to land in, you know, in a way that I think it will resonate. So I'll, mm-hmm. I'll tell a story of sort of how I got to that place. But um, it's really all about me helping the reader make their food taste better. But to be fair, Bob, your perspective is really interesting because in the beginning of the book, you say, I'm not going to use gratuitous amounts of salt, sugar, or butter. This is the way I cook at home. And having lived in in California and Southern California, where we live is magical. And I think what we have access to is magical. And I think that your perspective as an outsider creating these big flavors is is attractive because Southern California is beautiful and we have access to the greatest produce in the world. I mean, when you dropped off the book, you gave me kefir limes, you gave me finger limes. I mean, I was like, oh, that's off in my backyard, actually. I know. But your book does have a have a specific point of view. And I think that if you're in Ohio or you're in Minnesota or you're in Texas or Florida, South Carolina, your California influence is interesting. All the ingredients that I talk about, including my Flavor Bomb 15, um, there are ingredients that are available everywhere. Like I gave you some kaffir limes and some prickly pear juice that I forage for, but I don't use those in the book. Right. Or the limes, actually, I think I might I, I, I point out, but I don't call for them in recipes because right. uh, I'm, I, I would like to think that every recipe, every part of every recipe can be made um, regardless of where you live in the country. I also like how you've given the home cook alternatives. If you don't have the gear to execute on this technique, here is an alternative to get to arrive to the same place, like on grilling and searing. I thought that that was really useful and helpful. Thank you. I don't, I don't, you know, it's the same thing with ingredients. Like I don't want any, I don't want to exclude anybody and I don't want um, anybody to not be able to make something because they don't have a, you know, a piece of, well, even a grill. If you don't happen to have a grill, you're living, if you live in an apartment and you're not allowed to have a grill on your balcony or you don't even have a balcony, I, I don't want that to interfere with you being able to make the dish. So maybe uh, I would, you know, give a technique for cooking in a cast iron pan or something like that, or even just a regular pan, if you don't have a cast iron pan or a grill. If you were to give the home cook advice on four pieces of equipment that they should have in their kitchen that would make their life so much better, what would be your recommendations? (laughs) Well, I'm just flipping to my (laughs) section of my book that recommends gear. I know. I'm looking at it. <laughs> my, so I have my Flavor Bomb 15 and then I have my my sort of essentially my gear 15. Although I don't even know if it's if it's gear. Um, well, here's, a, here's um, you know, different things. That, some things are more practical than others. So for example, uh, a food processor uh, is right up there for me because I, I use mine all the time. And they'd be, they'd, you know, it doesn't have to be a fancy one. They're very inexpensive and functional food processors. Um, on the other end of the, the spectrum, a microplane, which a lot of people have, but a lot of people still don't have. And that's that little, that zester that, um, it's sort of like a long... It's like a zesting spatula, like a long zesting spatula with teeth. And once you have a microplane, then you can add zest to anything you want in, you know, with a couple of easy pulls of the microplane against the side of a of a lime or a lemon or whatever. And so all of a sudden, that microplane avails you zest in everything you make. Um, here's a good example of something that really does make a difference flavor-wise. Um, it's a, a chinois. A chinois. That, I feel like that should be like a dance. Would you like to chinois? It's a very fine mesh sieve. 
And uh, if you've ever been to a restaurant and you've had a soup and you've said to the server what's in this and expecting them to say it's, you know, heavy base heavy cream-based soup, and they tell you there's no cream in it, in all likelihood, the chef has used a chinoise. And a chinoise, what you do is you, you blend it. Like if you're making, let's say, an asparagus soup, like the one I have in my book, um, you blend that in a blender. But if you were to taste that, you know, heat it up after you'd, you'd finished making it, you'd still get some texture in your mouth, which is not a bad thing. It's like it would be a rustic asparagus soup. But if you take that soup, you put it in a chinois, this sieve, which is essentially a fancy word for a strainer. Uh, And then you use the back of uh, a ladle to push the soup. It's a V shape. And so you push the soup. It's like a cone, right? Like a cone? Yes, exactly. Mm -hmm. You push it through uh, the strainer. And at the end of it, you could put through a half a gallon of soup and you might just end up with a quarter of a cup at the left over at the bottom of this chinois uh, of fibrous, um, just, you know, it's, it's what's left. It's the fiber. Mm-hmm. But so you may only have a, a, a small palmful of it left, but it completely changes the texture of the soup and creates a very lush, luscious, velvety uh, sensation in your mouth. And so, so that's a good example of, of a piece of equipment, which also, you know, there are fancy ones, but you can buy them for 30 bucks mm-hmm. that, um, that you can use to really alter, um, the taste and texture of something you're making. It also comes in really handy if you, uh, if you break a cork or you've, your cork fragments in your, uh, wine bottle and you can just pour the wine through the chinois as well. Yeah, I love mine. It, it's so multi-purpose. I think when I was, I maybe, I don't know senior in, in, in college. And I was first learning about Thomas Keller and I heard him give an interview and he said, when in doubt, strain. (laughs) And that was so revelatory for me. I'm like, what do you mean strain? Like, what? I need to know more about this straining business. And it's so true. When I started working in the restaurant business, I I saw how chefs would, like you just said, would transform a pot of pulverized vegetables into this silky, delicious, smooth uh, soup with this mouthfeel of decadence. But they used zero heavy cream and zero butter. It's it's so bomb. So that's combining, you know, that's a good example of combining, A, my California perspective of if I can make it delicious without adding a, a cup of cream, of course I'm going to do that. And B, my experiences of traveling around and being in kitchens and, and learning about these tricks. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it gives me great pleasure to, to hear you sort of acknowledge and sort of pick these tricks out of the book because that's what that was my goal is just like give you so much information and so many tricks that if one doesn't appeal to you there's uh, the next page has another one and the next page has another one it's it's inclusive enough to give you um, a variety of gear to work with without you know asking you to order you know something from europe that's going to take six weeks to get here and it's not it's it's not over the top no thomas keller (laughs) For better or for worse. Exactly. And there's, there's room on the shelf for, for both of you, I, I think, you know, and there are, there are home cooks that are like, you know what? I just don't have time to be making, you know, a tartare and a cone and then, you know, topping it off with sesame seeds and then searing and the, the, however, you did include a sous vide, but you did not include an Instapot. What gives? Uh, well, <laughs> I've never used an I've never used an Instapot in my life, so I I couldn't give anybody. I mean, I could have read the you know the cliff notes and then talked about it, but that's not my style. So um, I just don't know anything about those. Um, but mm-hmm. sous vide is interesting. Uh, it's it's interesting because you know five years ago a sous vide maker was what is sous vide. For the audience that doesn't know what it is. It's, um, well, cooking sous vide is to cook under pressure. That's what it means, sous vide. Um, And it allows you to cook something to a very precise temperature. So I'll give you an example. If you're cooking a steak on a barbecue and you want that steak to be medium rare, 
you will. And by the way, this is I read many explanations of how sous vide works, and I and they all confused me. So then I created my own explanation, which I think is a lot more logical and helps help someone mm-hmm. who doesn't know what it is understand. So uh, if you if you want a steak to be medium rare, and you were to take a thermometer and stick it in the middle of it, you would find that it had a temperature, internal temperature of about 135 degrees. But to cook that, you take your cold steak and you put it on a barbecue that's 400 degrees and you cook it, you know, you put it down, you flip it, you flip it, and you basically have to guess when it's time to pull it off so that you're cooking on a 400 degree barbecue and you're trying to get your steak to 135 degrees in the center. So, you know, after a while, you get close and you know you have a general sense of it, but you never know. And we all overcook steaks or undercook them or whatever. With sous vide, and so it's, you know, there's a lot of guesswork to cooking like that. With sous vide, you, if you want your steak to be 135 degrees, and you put it in a water bath in a plastic bag, and you put this little sous vide maker in the in the water bath, which can just be a pasta pot full of water, and then you put this little, basically a cylinder in. It warms the the water and circulates it at a temperature that you set it to, so in this case, exactly 135 degrees. When your steak gets to 135 degrees after about two hours of sitting in this water bath, it's that beautiful pink that you always, you know, if you see a Ruth Chris ad in an airplane magazine with that gorgeous pink all the way through, that's what it's at. And then what you do is you you take it out of the water bath, you chill it down uh, in the refrigerator, and when you're ready to serve it, you get a, a pan scalding hot, and you sear the exterior of it on both sides to get that beautiful crust. Um, and you you do that for about a minute aside. Now the steak was cold to begin with, so the internal temperature will not rise above that 135 degrees. That's that perfect medium rare pinkness and so we then you but the steak does warm up so you end up with a gorgeous inside and a beautifully crusted outside which is your dream steak and that's that's what sous vide is all about there's not really much to it it and and then another nice thing is that if you're cooking steaks for say 10 people if you tried that on a grill by the time you were turning you know when and the steaks at one end of the grill the other ones would be burning um with the beauty of of sous vide, you, you know, every one turns out perfectly. And if you're like me who likes their steak, I like my steak thick. I like my steak thick. I like my steak wide. I like my steak giant. And if you don't <laughs> All you need is a big pasta pot. A big pasta pot. I don't apologize for how I love my steak. But if you put, you know, a four inch tall steak, and I, I know I'm going to get flack for that, but you know, whatever, that's what I like. But you put something of that magnitude on high heat, you're going to dehydrate the outside of the steak and the middle's never going to cook. So you're going to get all of this like dehydrated and crusted at one point, but eventually it'll just burn because the steak is too big. And um, sous vide, I think, offers a lot of promise. And before I forget, I want to let listeners know that I will put details of all of these techniques and the things that we've talked about in show notes so that you can use your show notes with the book and get busy cooking because it is a lot of fun. I think that you really are going to enjoy this this book. Um, one last thing on knives. I loved what you said. An expensive chef knife will not make you a better cook. Are you kidding? <laughs> well, it's just like handing someone an expensive tennis racket and expecting them to become become a better tennis player or handing someone an expensive camera and expecting them to take great photographs. It's a tool. Actually, I really, really enjoyed a guest that I heard on your show a while back who owned a knife store. Oh, John Broida. Yes. Yeah. The first thing he said to you was, my knives aren't for everybody. And don't think... Don't think just by running out and buying one of my fancy Japanese knives, you're going to be any better a cook because he said the most important things are the ingredients you cook with and what you do with them. Now, a knife can give you some added pleasure. And, you know, um, there's, as I mentioned in my book, you know, it's like knife porn. Like I understand that it's addictive (laughs) because knives are great to look at and they can feel great. And in your hand, and that's all beautiful if you have that money to burn. But I, 
I see line chefs in kitchens with your general issue $15 plastic handled knives. Yep. Yep. Those knife skills are, you know, better than most people and most most fancy chefs that I've seen who have the fancy knives. I learned yeah, I learned so much from John. Um, I spent a, a bunch of time with him doing that show, and I thought I knew my stuff, but whoo, Bob, I walked out of there like, uh, back to school I go, <laughs> you know? Um, his shop is beautiful. So if you have not heard uh, the show, it was a deep dive into Japanese knives. It's up on my website, kitchenscenainvestigator.com. It's a deep dive into Japanese knives, and uh, I don't want to take away from our conversation. No, he was I, really, he was great. I highly recommend that your listeners uh, tune in. But I, I do believe that there is a lot to be said about how you cut and slice and dice an ingredient will impact how it performs in a recipe and how it looks on a plate. Um, that's, that's an intense conversation. Hey, I'm the wrong guy to have. I know, I know, I know, whatever, 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 whatever. Um, if you could reveal from that, I want to go back to that, that before I forget that flavor bomb, uh, 15, if you could reveal one or two on that flavor bomb 15, what would it be? I know my two favorites. Um, one of my favorite ingredients that I use a lot in everything from eggs to uh, on sandwiches, just if I'm making a basic sandwich, is harissa. Yes! It's about three, $3 for a tube of it, so it's insanely inexpensive. And harissa is... Um, it's like a chili paste mixed with garlic and herbs. Um, it's Moroccan or Tunisian. North African, yeah. Yes. Uh, and it just it it just gives you so much more flavor than, say, just plain old chili flakes. So if I'm making a puttanesca pasta, I will use uh, harissa instead mm-hmm. of uh, chilies. Other things I talk about that are... Um, familiar but maybe not used as often as they can be um, anchovies I love using anchovies but not putting anchovies in something or on something whole but using them to build a flavor base mm-hmm. um, and so they just disappear into what I'm cooking and you don't even really know they're there I mean so many mm-hmm. people who hate anchovies love things with anchovies in them they just don't know that they're there. like a, mm-hmm. say a black olive paste, for example. Um, I've really fallen in love recently with uh, fancy balsamic vinegars. Not the crazy 100-year-old ones. I mean, I do Mm -hmm. love those, but I can't afford them. But um, you can get a great bottle of truly aged balsamic vinegar. And when I say truly aged, it's because any grocery store has balsamics that say aged balsamic, but it's not really. It's got Fruit, you know, it's got coloring, it's got caramel in it, it's got, but the real balsamics are aged in wood barrels, just like wine is aged, and they get this delicious, luscious viscosity um, f- from, because of the evaporation that happens through the calf over, you know, a number of years. And it, they may be 20 or $25 a bottle for a 12 ounce bottle, but that will last you forever because just drizzle it judiciously. Uh, you're on mm-hmm. a piece of uh, Parmesan Reggiano, or I'll make a salad dressing and I'll use a half a teaspoon of it with some really good olive oil. And, and it just, there's a sweetness to it. And again, a viscosity. And um, then, of course, the acid, but it's the kind of sweet acidity that's so gorgeous. So I've, I've really, um, in fact, if, when people come to my house and I say, can I bring some wine? I, I usually just say, bring, instead, of, instead of taking the chance of what they're going to bring, I say, just bring a bottle of balsamic. Oh, that's so I build my balsamic collection. You're a con artist. No, you know what? People <laughs> spend more money on a bottle of I wine know. than a bottle of, of balsamic. So yeah. So in terms of, in terms of recipes. Which isn't to say I'm not a car artist. <laughs> Not in the context of my cooking. <laughs> um, okay. So in terms of like what people can expect to see in terms of recipes, what what types or what categories of recipes will the home cook expect to see when they crack open this awesome little book you got going here? I've tried to, I've presented dishes that are, are, are functional dishes that 
are that I want to be people's go-to dishes. So I have like mm-hmm. five or six different burgers, all of which mm-hmm. are just full of huge, huge flavor. Um, mm-hmm. I have a recipe for um, what I call smushed potatoes, not to, mm-hmm. not to be um, thought of as a typo for smashed potatoes, where you mm-hmm. take a potato, like a, a tennis ball-sized Yukon gold potato, and you boil it. Then you let it cool down. You put it on a sheet pan, drizzle a pile of olive oil on a sheet pan. Then you smush the potato down so it's flattened and maybe a half an inch thick. And then you put some more olive oil on top and you bake it for about an hour, even a little longer than an hour at 425 or 35 degrees. And you get so much crunch. That potato gets all browned and crispy. Yeah. And then um, I have I have a section in the back of my book where I... Um, provide recipes for about a half dozen sauces, including right. uh, a romesco sauce, right. which is uh, red bell pepper and hazelnuts. Yep. One of my favorites. Aioli, uh, a simple one-minute one green herb sauce, and and also a homemade ketchup that is like really like a tomato chutney with so much depth of flavor as opposed to ketchup ketchup, which is just sugar and tomatoes. Right. So you put any of those sauces on these smushed, potatoes and it's honestly it's like you've died and gone to heaven and and it was and for very little effort yeah i like how you how you have the right you know what when it comes to spending money on a book like i want to know what i'm buying and i like how you have it organized you're you're organized even though you're rock and roll bob you're really organized you know (laughs) um so in the book you can expect to see nibbles you can expect to see open acts which are soups and salads then you have headliners, which is like your your main dishes. Morning glories, which is breakfast. I like that. Um, love potions. That's what you were talking about in sauces. You call them love potions. <laughs> and I'm obsessed with sauces, so I'm going to have to borrow the love potions um, title for my sauces. My- it's all yours. It's all yours. <laughs> um, and and they are. They're, they're approachable. I made two recipes from the book. I made the um, the spiced pecan little cookies. I liked that I didn't have to worry about busting the bubbles in the meringue um, and just letting it, you know, bake into. They're almost like a like a cookie island around pecans, um, which I enjoyed very much. And then I made the jalapeno sauce. I'm obsessed with sauces, so I wanted to try a fresh sauce. That's with, that goes with the shrimp, if I'm not mistaken. Right, right. There's cooked sauces, and then there's blended sauces. And I think that that's really important for home cooks to, you know, play around with. Because if you have greens or you have vegetables, you have a sauce. And that's so liberating. And I did enjoy, I did enjoy that jalapeno sauce very much. I'm excited to try the salmon burger. Um, oh, God, my list is too long. I really have to calm down because I'm <laughs> want to cook too much for a minute. Is there anything that we've missed about the book that you want to make sure that uh, listeners know about? Um, you know, a, a page that I just sat down in front of my computer one day and decided to muse about turned into what I think is probably my favorite page in the book. And it's called Courage and Confidence. And it was just my perspective on it. But um, I know so many home cooks lack the confidence and think, you know, they're just afraid to start things because they're afraid of what could go wrong. But really evolving as a home cook is about burning yourself, cutting yourself, grating your knuckles on a, you know, um, a grater. Uh, It's doing all those things. And every time you do that and you realize it's not the end of the world, you develop more confidence and you burn things and you drop things. And like, but that's how you become a better cook. After I wrote that, I thought, you know, I sure wish someone had really walked me through this 30 years ago. I, I would have uh, been a lot more confident then and started at a, you know, at a different place. So it wouldn't have taken me as long to get to where I've gotten to. 
Um, but uh, um, that's page eighty-two, by the way. <laughs> otherwise, I think you've uh, you've covered uh, you've covered the book pretty well. I'm excited to share this with listeners, and like I said, I'm going to have all sorts of details about the book, about Bob's life, about his escapades. Where can people find you, Bob? Um, well, I'm on Instagram. Okay. which is uh, um, the one social media platform that I enjoy because it's really, it's, I think of it as an art platform. Uh, and I'm at Bob Bloomer. That's Bob and Bloomer, B-L-U-M-E-R. Mm-hmm. And uh, my website is bobbloomer.com. Do you want my address? Is that what you want to know? Well, I fun? just, I want to climb your trees. I want to climb your trees and take your limes. <laughs> There's that Mickey taking those limes again. Oh, boy. Uh, <laughs> you were telling me a, about a film festival you're going to be hosting soon, right? Right? Oh, it's actually happening as we speak this week. Oh, okay. And I normally host it uh, every year in Wolfville, Nova Scotia, but this year it's a virtual. What's the name of it? What's the name of the festival? Devour. It's Mm -hmm. the Devour Film Festival, and it's all food-related films, food and drinks and whatnot. Well, we've come to a portion of the show, which is, I mean, I love interviewing people because when I created this podcast, what I really wanted to do was share the ways and language of the pros so that listeners at home could build their own life menu. That's easy breezy what I wanted to do with this podcast. And then it occurred to me that my guests are so multidimensional that I love to end the show on three questions. You ready? ready? The three questions are, what are you drinking? And it doesn't need to be alcoholic, but if it is, it's COVID, it's fine. Um, <laughs> what's making you happy in the culinary or, you know, culinary author world? And the third question is, what is your favorite gift to give a friend or colleague? So we'll start with, what are you drinking? Now, when you say, what am I drinking? Are you asking me what I'm drinking right now at this time of day or what what have I been drinking lately? What have you been drinking lately? I mean, you can tell me what you're drinking right now and I can feel like a total stalker, but that's okay. <laughs> well, right now I'm drinking an Earl Grey tea that I make and I, I buy by the, literally buy it by the kilo from a company in Boston called the Upton Tea Company. And they, um, I, they have an extra bergamot Earl Grey that, mm-hmm. uh, bergamot, excuse me, uh, Earl Grey that I'm kind of addicted to. But um, like Everybody else, I've been drinking lots of wine. Mm-hmm. Do you have a favorite? Uh, well, I have. They are all my children, but um, <laughs> one of one of my favorites is a wine called Chalon. It's a very um, small batch uh, Pinot Noir from the Santa Rita Hills, and they have several single vineyard bottlings. Yeah. Um, and my favorite is called Jasper, which is named after the owner's daughter. Um, nice. But it's a lovely, very raspberry forward Burgundian style Pinot Noir. Oh, that sounds precious. Is that by uh, Paso Robles? Yes. And so the second question is, what is making you happy in the culinary world or culinary writing? Um, you know what's making me the happiest in the culinary world right now? Uh, that is that most farmers markets uh, have managed to figure out a way to stay open, and just being able for me to go down the street to uh, my farmers market on Sunday and have all the vendors there with the amazing produce is that I think is what's really gotten me through the pandemic. It's you know being able to stock up every week and come home and because I'm cooking three meals a day, seven days a week at home, um, it's kept everything fresh and exciting for me. I love it. And then finally, what is your favorite gift to give a friend or colleague? Um, well, uh, <laughs> you, uh, you were a benefactor of my favorite <laughs> gift. Uh, I, I, do a little bit of foraging around where I live, which is in the Hollywood Hills. And so I forage for prickly pear cactuses at this time of year. And um, uh, and then I make a, a juice from them that I use to make a prickly pear margarita. Yum. I, I, I make this juice, which you, you have to... The cactus pears are um, 
mm, it's like the size of a large egg, an extra large egg, um, but they have these tiny glochia on them, which are these tiny, tiny microscopic spines, and uh, and they'll get under your skin and make you crazy, like asbestos, from that pink <laughs> asbestos from when you were a kid. Um, and so you have, you have to put on like a hazmat suit to pick them and you wear a hazmat suit when you cut them in half and you scoop out the flesh which has lots of seeds in it and you put them in a blender and you pulse it and then you run it through a chinois and you get this glorious, deep, rich, red uh, juice that's like a very earthy watermelon juice. And then mm-hmm. I freeze that in jars um, and use it for prickly pear margaritas. And so I love to share those those jars with, with friends. As well as things like um, wild fennel pollen that I I forage for and other things like that. So that's my favorite gift to give someone or things from my exotic citrus trees. That sounds so lovely. And yes, I was the beneficiary of some of that. Well, Bob, I feel that I got a little gift in the middle of all the mayhem (laughs) with COVID and what's happening. And even though I miss going out to eat, I feel like this little gift of a book has given me some new ideas to be bombastic and season with no regret. I love to season with no regret, but that's a whole different story. But I just want to say thank you. I wish that you had your book tour, but that being said, I will put all of the information about the book. I will put information about Bob's work with charities and uh, organizations. And thank you. Thank you so much for spending so much time with me today. Oh, well, it's been, it's been a pleasure spending the time with you and with your audience. And, um, and I'm grateful for the platform, given that I'm, you know, really not able to leave my house. So it's, uh, it's much appreciated. Thank you. Well, despite the craziness, this darkness with COVID, not only here in Los Angeles, but around the world, I hope this interview with Bob about his new book, Flavor Bomb, inspires you to try something new, try new ways to explore crave-worthy cooking. Check out the show notes. I included everything. Lots of links, resources, how to buy the book, and all sorts of goodies. No, food is more than just a meal. It's, It's our culture. It's the way we experience life and our identity. And as we approach the new year, from my family to yours, I wish you safe, healthy holidays. I will see you next time. Bye.